please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 11 verses of that chapter as we make our way through God's glorious book that he has given us. Mankind pursues joy in all kinds of different ways. As a matter of fact, that is one of the ways that we're made in the image of God. That we love to pursue joy. Eventually we'll have that joy forever. But in this life, we we pursue it in many different ways. Think of uh, Voltaire, who pursued joy in unbelief. And towards the end of his life, this is what he said. I wish I had never been born. Lord Byron pursued joy in pleasures. And at the end of his life, he wrote, The worm, the canker, and grief are mine and mine alone. Jay Gould, the American millionaire, pursued joy in money. And when dying, he said, I suppose I am the most miserable man on earth. Lord Beaconsfeld enjoyed more of his share of position and fame in England. And he pursued joy in those two things. And he wrote, Youth is a mistake, manhood a struggle, and old age a regret. Alexander the Great conquered the known world in his time. He pursued the joy in military glory. And he was found, towards the end of his life, weeping in his tent, saying there are no more worlds to conquer. So, We pursue joy in all kinds of different avenues. But where is that joy that can sustain us, that's deep and abiding? They can can bear the weight that we put on it. I think that is what our text today is trying to tell us. Look with me at chapter chapter 2, verse 1. God's word says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though his servants who had drawn it knew. 
Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Father God, I pray that you use me, work through me to encourage and challenge and teach your sheep, your people, the ones that you love about you. Amen. Mark Johnston in his commentary says, From the very outset, John makes it clear he wants his readers to reflect on what he's saying. In a way, this is the thinking man's gospel, he writes. That is, the more a person thinks about what John says, the more they will appreciate how much he has said about Jesus. This is the first of of Jesus' seven miracles that John records. He records only seven, although there are more than 35 he could have chosen that are told to us in the Gospels, probably out of the hundreds and hundreds he did that are not told in the Gospels. But John had an explicit purpose for telling each of these seven miracles. He wanted each miracle that he records for us to tell us something specific about Jesus, something specific about Jesus' kingdom. And here he wants his readers, he wants us to see the real, lasting, deep, sustaining, abiding, abundant joy that is found in Christ Jesus. Because as Voltaire, as Lord Byron, as Alexander the Great found out, and they give evidence to, if you seek joy elsewhere, eventually the joy runs out. Eventually the joy runs out in that pursuit. Eventually you get to the point where it gives you no more joy, although you thought it would. You get to that point and you say, it's empty. I thought I would find the lasting joy. I thought that this would sustain the weight of my meaning, of my purpose. And you get to that point and it's empty. Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding in Cana. And in verse 3, it tells us the wine runs out. It's a very serious issue. For us, we go, okay, the wine's gone, okay, no, no big deal. In that culture at that time, this was a huge deal. As a matter of fact, it was such a huge infraction in the Middle East to the hospitality code that a lawsuit could actually be brought against that family. In this situation, if a, wine, if a wedding ran out of wine, a guest could actually sue the family. But secondly, the wine is not just the main beverage of the Jewish culture. It is, it was. Water wasn't safe to drink. Wine thus became the safe beverage. It was the central beverage of that culture. But it also held deep 
symbolic and spiritual significance for the Jew. Wine, in their mind, brought to mind prosperity. Think back to Numbers chapter 13 when the spies came out, uh, brought back, came out of the promised land. And what did they bring back? They brought back a cluster of grapes, signifying, symbolizing the prosperity that was in that land. Judges 9 speaks of wine that cheers both the hearts of men and of the gods. When describing the Lord, the psalmist says this, He, the Lord, brings forth food from earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man. And when describing what Israel will be like in the new age, Isaiah writes, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There's a rabbinical saying at the time, without wine there is no joy. And this wedding had run out of joy. And so Mary comes to Jesus, and we're kind of privy to a very interesting conversation they have. Kind of one that makes us scratch our heads. You know, why does Mary assume on Jesus like this? Isn't Jesus supposed to be the one who, who is the driver here? Makes us think about how strange it is and and how almost disrespectful his term is to her. Woman, why do you involve me? But what is certainly clear here is that this request kickstarts, starts his earthly ministry. He turns the water into wine, and as verse 11 tells us, he begins to reveal his glory. He thus revealed his glory. He begins revealing that he is God become man. He is God come down in in human form. He begins to reveal that he will live a life of perfection. He begins to reveal that, that as his ministry rolls out, that he will take the punishment that we deserve and that he will give us the righteousness that he has earned freely. He begins revealing that only he can give us the joy that sustains us. Only he can supply that joy that is lasting, that is deep enough, that is wide enough to carry us through this life. Because just like wine running out at a a wedding, eventually it runs out in each and every one of our lives if we're not Rooted in Christ this way. You'll get to the end of the pursuit of the joy that you're on. And the effects look different in different people's lives. Sometimes when the joy runs out of a person's life, they become very stoic. Have you ever noticed that? This is my lot in life. They become very stoic, unemotional. And they go through life that way. The joy has run out, run out of their life. For other people, it, it run, when the joy runs out, they become bitter and resentful. When my mom was writing her book, Snow Time, she was doing research on 
on dementia. And she would take me as a young teenager to Alton Craig, the old people's home that was kind of catty corner to our house, and we would spend hours there as she was relating to these people. And I would wander around Alton Craig as she was doing this, and I would see all kinds. One of the images that is burned in my mind is the bitterness, the anger, and the resentment of some of those people. The joy had run out, and that was their response to it. For some, when the run, wine runs out of their life, they see no reason to keep on living. And we see that and hear about that far too often. People ending their lives. Each generation, I think, of, of people has their suicide that kind of makes them stop in their tracks, that kind of makes them reflect on their life. For the millennials, I think it was the death of Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana in the early 90s. He had everything. He was, he was on the rise. Everything looked perfect. He had success. He had fame. He had money. And when the wine ran out of his life, he ended it with an intentional overdose of drugs. I think for the baby boomers, the, the suicide that rocked their generation, that made them stop in their tracks and reflect, was Robin Williams' suicide a couple years ago. Here was a guy that was loved by the world. The world embraced, admired this man. But he thought the wine had run out. And he hung himself ended his life. For the Great Depression generation, I believe that this was Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway perhaps embodied the zest and joy of life like few others. He really went after life with gusto, if you know anything about his life. I mean, he was a, he was a reporter and an ambulance driver in World War I. He, uh, he hunted big game, trophy game in Africa and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He went deep sea fishing in the Pacific for giant marlin. He had fame with being an author around the world. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. But on July 2nd, a Sunday in 1961, he walked to his foyer and put a shotgun to his head. The wine ran out. It was gone. Why should I live? The joy was gone. Because the truth of the matter is that no matter the life you live, nothing can carry the weight of your joy. Nothing can carry the meaning of your life. Nothing can bear up under that. Nothing can sustain the joy in your life except Christ alone. And that is what this miracle shows. The joy found in Christ alone. See, Christ alone can bring real, lasting, abundant spiritual joy. And that's what John wants us to see in this miracle. He alone miraculously brought joy back to this wedding. Nearby there were six stone or ceramic jars. 
And he told the servants to fill them with water, and he transformed them from water into wine. Returning joy to the wedding. Now, the problem with preaching on Christian joy or or spiritual joy is twofold. First, I don't think we really know what it is. What is Christian joy? What is spiritual joy? It's kind of nebulous. It's kind of hazy in our minds. And the second is, how do we delineate that from just regular joy? How do we know when we experience spiritual joy? So we ask, what is the difference between spiritual joy and the joy that Voltaire found or Hemingway found in their short lives? Piper says this, John Piper says this about Christian joy. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. As the Spirit, it's an emotional response that the Holy Spirit activates when we begin seeing Christ in all his beauty in the word and in the world. So first we notice that Christian joy is not much different in emotional experience. It is an emotional experience. Christian joy is an emotional experience. When the master of the banquet learned that there was no more wine, he was emotionally distraught. And when he learned that there was wine, he became joyful again. And we're not told in the text, but I'm sure that the wedding in general became more joyful. Christian joy is like that. Christian joy is a good feeling. Piper goes on to say, Christian joy is not an act of willpower but a spontaneous, emotional response of the heart. It's an emotional response. But, I think there are a couple differences between worldly joy and spiritual joy. And the first one is that spiritual joy is not superficial or flimsy, but it is solid, it is deep, and it's lasting. Christian joy is not dependent on circumstances. Christian joy, and this is important, Christian joy is not dependent on circumstances. Jesus, when he was addressing the crowd one time, told the parable of the seeds or the soils, however you want to remember it. And he said this about one of the seeds that is sown on rocky ground. He said, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They respond with an emotional response. Christ alone, that's wonderful. Yet, he goes on, he has no root in himself and endures for a little while. And when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, and you know the rest, immediately he falls away. The joy is gone. The wine ran out. One way you know that you, the joy you're experiencing is spiritual joy is that it endures through the circumstances of your life. Spiritual joy, when tested, does not shrink away. 
Doesn't mean that Christians never get sad, guys. <laughs> doesn't mean that. But it means the tenor of your life, the scope of your life, when you take a, the overarching look of it is joy. Secondly, spiritual joy is not based on who you are, but what you're becoming. Spiritual joy is not based on who you are, but what you're becoming. What do I mean by this? Christian joy looks forward. Christian joy is forward-looking. That's what, why James can write, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. How can there be joy in trials? Because you're looking forward to what Christ is doing in you. Who he's making you out to be eventually. You see that there's purpose behind this. It's not willy-nilly. God is purposing this for my good. Adrian Rogers said, I have not suffered a lot for Christ. But I want to tell you that those times that I have suffered, I knew it was for Jesus, having been some of the happiest times of my entire life. I cannot tell you, he goes on, the indescribable joy that has come into my heart and life at those times. Have you ever experienced that? An indescribable joy, even though the circumstances of your life, person looking at you going, I don't know how that's possible. That is evidence of Christian joy, spiritual joy. The world's joy shrinks back. The world's joy has no, they see no purpose in it. That's why people end their lives. But Christians look beyond that. And lastly, spiritual joy is rooted not in what you have, but on what you've been given. Spiritual joy is not based in what you have, but what you've been given. After the 2008 economic crash, there were stories throughout America of people ending their lives because what they had was gone. It was wiped out in a matter of hours. The wine ran out. For the Christian that roots his joy in Christ, the wine can never run out. It's because Christians never lose what they've been given, salvation through Jesus Christ. You can't lose that. John, in his gospel, this is one of his themes in his gospel. If you're reading ahead, look for this theme. He says, in whom I have in my hand, no man can pluck out. Those are Jesus' words. Christ alone can give you what you can never lose. You can lose everything else in your life. But you can't lose the salvation that Christ has given you. So have you experienced this type of deep, sustained, abundant joy? Have you had this type of joy in your life? That illogical, positive, self-sustaining, emotional experience despite circumstances? Have you experienced that? Ever? For many believers, the answer is no. And maybe you're one of them. You're sitting there going, have I ever experienced that? I don't know if I I can't identify that. 
Well, if you're one of those, you're not alone. That's the second problem with uh, preaching about spiritual joy. Many Christians have never really experienced it. Why? Here's the reason. Because we never give it a chance. We never give spiritual joy a chance to reveal itself in us. Tim Keller wrote in Counterfeit Gods, he says, do you remember when your mother used to say, don't eat candy before meals? Why did she say that? Because she knew it would ruin your next meal. The trouble with eating candy is that it gives you a sugar buzz and you don't feel hungry anymore. Candy masks the fact that your body needs proteins and nutrients. The sugar buzz from candy masks your hunger for the real nutrients your body really needs. Things like sex and power and money and success, as well as favorable circumstances in your lives, act like spiritual candy. Christians who have these spiritual candies may say, sure, I believe in God and I know I'm going to heaven, but they've actually based their day-to-day joy on favorable circumstances. Keller continues, when the circumstances change, it drives us to God. Because when sugar disappears, when the candy gets taken away, we're forced to pursue the feast that our souls really crave. We'll hunger for the spiritual nutrients we really need. I think Keller nails it, especially for us Americans. Very insightful. Many times we base our joy on things other than our salvation in Jesus Christ, other than what Christ has done for us, other than on Christ alone. In the time when times do get difficult, what do we do? We run to the candy counter. Like Gould or Alexander the Great or Hemingway, we're quick to seek joy in other things. And we never give spiritual joy a chance to reveal itself to us. We look elsewhere for that love buzz, that joy buzz. We can see the truth of this in our own lives when you go to some place like Haiti. And what do we say when we come back from Haiti? I can't believe that they're joyful. How can they be joyful? They don't have food. They don't have TV. They don't have comfort. We say these things because those are the things we run to. Those are our spiritual joys. Yet, they have joy, don't they? And that is revelatory to us. What we're really saying is we are amazed that they can have joy without our spiritual candy. You see, we're so used to the spiritual candy that we cannot even understand life without it. We're so used to hopping in the car 
and taking a stroll at Walmart, consumer joy. We're so used to hopping online and visiting sites we shouldn't, sexual joy. We're so used to going from one relationship to another, relationship joy. We're so used to hopping over to the refrigerator, food joy. Hopping into our new car, toy joy. Hopping quickly to our particular, our specific candy counter. And eating that sugar. And masking spiritual joy. C.S. Lewis wrote, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of vacation by the sea. We're far too easily pleased, he writes. Boy, that's true. We need to learn, as Isaiah says, to draw our joy from the wells of our salvation. We have to learn that, guys. That the deep, abiding happiness and contentment and security that we look for in other places is found in abundance in Jesus Christ. We have to learn not to run to the candy counter. And when we do, if we're patient enough, if we're disciplined enough not to go to the candy counter, you'll begin to see the results of joy in your life. Mark Johnston in his commentary writes, the way that Jesus transformed a wedding party that day provides a glimpse a glimpse of how he transforms our lives every day. And that's the result of Jesus in a life, transformed joy, real spiritual joy, real Christian joy that doesn't run out. Do you realize that when Jesus performed that miracle, he changed 180 gallons of water into the finest of wine. The finest of wine was diluted five to one. That means that he created enough wine for a normal family to live on for four years, for one person for almost ten years. Abundant joy. That wine's not going to run out at that wedding. Never. It's a joy that is not based on circumstances, not on your wallet book or checkbook or IRA. It's not based on what you have or don't have or the lifestyle lead or the vacations that you take or don't take or can't take. A joy not based on your particular candy counter, but based on what Christ has guaranteed you. And that is life with him forever. Paradise. Heaven. Master of the banquet declares to the groom in verse 10, 
He goes to him and he says, oh, oh, come here. You, you got to explain something to me. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then a cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best for last. You saved the best until last. The prosperity gospel actually has it right in one respect. God deeply desires and wants you to have everything. He does. <laughs> he wants you to have everything. How the prosperity gospel gets it wrong is they put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. They put it in this life. When God promises it in the next. If you put your faith in Christ, you are guaranteed joy to your heart's content forever. C.S. Lewis wrote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought about the next the most. And he ends that by saying, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. So my encouragement for you today, if you want to experience real Christian joy, real spiritual joy, is you want to aim at heaven. You want to realize what you have guaranteed. You want, a persi- you want a persistent joy? Aim at heaven. You want deep, abiding joy? Focus on what Christ has given you. You want joy that can withstand the circumstances of your lives, no matter what circumstance? Remember what Peter encourages all those churches that were under such intense persecution. He says, remember that you have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept for you in heaven. It's waiting for you, he's saying. Focus on that. Aim at that. Remember that. You want to sustain joy in this life? Do what Christians have done for 2,000 years. Remember, our master of our banquet saves the best to last. In closing, listen to how Isaiah 25 beautifully expresses this. On this mountain, he's talking about heaven. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all the faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. That's what we have to look forward to. Aim at heaven, children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Spirit, that you will use it and change our hearts and minds.
supernaturally. Amen.